to another episode of Talks Now. I'm Matt Zuckerman from the University of Colorado School of Medicine. On today's show, we're talking to Louis Goldfrank, author of the eponymous Goldfrank's Toxicologic Emergencies, one of the canonical tox references. Now, many people know him as a physician and as a toxicologist, but a recurring theme in stories about him and conversations with him is also his humanity. I think many of us imagine that the giants in our fields sprang forth fully formed, ready to wake up in the morning and change medicine. But in today's interview, Dr. Goldfrank is pretty candid about the sometimes wayward path that led him here. We talk about a bunch of things and some pathophys about thiamine and alcoholics that I hope to save for another episode. But for today's episode, I'd like us to focus on the humanity that brought him to emergency medicine and toxicology. I hope you have as much fun listening to this as I had recording it. I went to college. Uh, I, went, I went to high school in a small town uh, outside of New York City, and I... Uh, Got very interested in science, and I saw a science project at the Worcester Foundation for Experimental Biology. They took, uh, it was in Shrewsbury, Massachusetts. And as a high school kid, I won an award to go there, and I went. And I worked with um, some scientists uh, there. One was Gregory Pincus, who was developing the oral contraceptive. And another guy who came, we were mentored. All of us went out there and worked in their laboratories during a summer block. And someone else came from England, a guy named... Uh, Bill Peary, who was a biochemist and a band-the-bomb guy and a, a guy who was experimenting on himself with LSD and things like that. This was with Aldous Huxley at that time. That was his research. That was not your research. That was that not was, my research. Okay. My, his, what he taught me, this guy Bill Peary, he, his discussion was about Kwashiorkor Marasmus and uh, how he was going to save the world uh, by working on that project. Mm-hmm. And so I was very interested in both those projects. The summer I continued his study in Worcester I worked a little bit with Gregory Pincus and some of the other people there. Then I had to go to college and two years later, so I decided I'd go back to Worcester, to Clark, and I could spend time at the Worcester Foundation for Experimental Biology and to go to a school that sounded very interesting. And I studied chemistry and civil rights there or something like that. I went into medicine knowing very little about medicine, but I was very interested in the politics. And I saw from, you know, books that all of us read, Paul de Kreif's uh, books or uh, Bertrand Rouchet's books about the medical detective, about how finding something out, you then go to study it. You have to look at the person. You have to get the narrative to do the process. And I uh, learned that, you know, this was science in the laboratory, but it was about something. I, I When I read, met Gregory Pincus, I didn't know anything about abortions. I didn't know much about probably about pregnancy either, but about abortions, about how many people were dying every day from septic abortions. And he was going to prevent that. He was going to allow women the choice to make decisions on when they wanted to be pregnant and exactly what it would be like. When I was in medical school, uh, I showed you the graphic of the Johns Hopkins emergency department and or the getting in there through the colored door or the white door. Yes, yes. And, and Chris McStay said there was some... Um, so uh, I, I was very actively involved in trouble. civil rights demonstrations in, the, in Baltimore. And so that's why I went there when I finished at Clark, because I thought I had done a lot of civil rights work in Worcester uh, when I was a student. Uh, And so I thought since I was going to go to medical school now, I'd go to a place that was a good medical school and that was in the South. And I I looked at a number of places, but I thought that Johns Hopkins looked like a great place to go. So I I got there and the the problems associated with uh, racism and discrimination were obvious to the patients. I don't know if you read Henrietta Lacks' story. I have, yes. So yes. that occurred in the decade before 
uh, I was there. Uh, but the problems that people had and the issues that people talked about and seeing what was happening, I couldn't cope with it. Uh, I wasn't going to do well, but I was actively involved in civil rights demonstration. I was told I shouldn't do that. So I, I couldn't stop doing it. So the dean decided to stop me from going to school there. So I got kicked out of school. And then that was, and the, the emergency department experience I walked through, I was shown through is the way everyone else was. This is where we sew up, uh, a lot of patients, this old black guy, you can do it. They'll never notice what's going on. Just you'll do repair. I said, I don't know the difference between a nerve and a vein and an artery. How can I go and do anything? So that was the feeling I had about what was the dignity of man. Then I went to, uh, so when I got kicked out of school, my wife and daughter and I went to um, uh, Brussels, Belgium. I looked around. I met someone before I left. They said, this a medical school is good there. People, it's called... Uh, the Free University of Brussels, they take anybody. They don't care what your beliefs are. They only care what your scores are and what you do. So I went and it was a pretty exciting uh, experience. I had a lot of fun in the emergency department in Brussels. Uh, the, the university hospital was in a very impoverished area. Lots of immigrants in North Africa. It sounds like you must have had a very understanding wife also in <laughs> terms of the, honey, I'm sorry, we're, I'm out of, out of the med school. We're going to Belgium. Well, I think that uh, by the time I uh, got kicked out, uh, we know knew. I, I I didn't think I was going to get kicked out. I thought uh, I, I said to the dean, my grades seem fine, but I had really lost my heart for what they were doing. I didn't believe it's the right place for me, so we went. And I think uh, it's a blessing. Yeah, we're turning tremendous. I learned French. I speak French very often to patients now. I good beer. I uh, the beer is wonderful there. I learned a lot about beer. So it it's a it was a complete. Uh, change in my existence. But I think we, uh, my wife was going to school as well. So, and both of us picked up school and finished up school in Europe and, and had a child and a second child while we were there. You couldn't, it's very hard to do that in an American medical school. <laughs> I, I can remember the point that made me so excited about emergency medicine was we had an epidemic among the uh, community, particularly in the North African community of meningococcal sepsis. And it's terrible. I mean, it's yeah, really terrible. Uh, lethal. So we people would come, came in to the emergency department. Uh, and the first day, I don't remember what day of the week it was, but the first day we had two people, they came in, they had a little bit of a uh, rash. We start to examine them. By the time we'd done all the things appropriate, they had just uh, meningococcemia and just died in six hours. And we said, so how could we do better? We all talked about it. We had really started a triage system which hadn't existed in great part before. We started a decision about how we're going to decide what to do for these kids. How are we going to, we ended up with people, if you had a headache, that was more than enough to get a spinal tap, uh, if not to start antibiotics immediately. So we, we, it changed the way of thinking about this immediacy of care and how important it was. There wasn't a good EMS system there, just as there weren't in America, but there people just pouring in from the community. So we had about 35 cases in children in one week. But for me, it just transformed how I thought about what medicine was like. So sadly, we have to leave Belgium here, land of chocolate and good beer, and head back to New York to put Dr. Goldfrank in a place where he can do much good. I actually had done uh, the first year when we came back from Europe, I went to the University of Connecticut. And I did half internal medicine and half, uh, they just opened a new medical school. So half, half internal medicine, half pediatrics. And I love both of them, but I knew I didn't like to be in the hospital 
with pediatrics because the kids were too sick and they were all dying. And I didn't like to be in internal medicine because they'd have to follow people with hypertension and diabetes for their lives. Check their feet, yeah. And so I didn't want to do either of those. And so I went on to Montefiore where you spent six months in the South Bronx and six months in, at Montefiore in the North Bronx. And so uh, I fell in love with the work I was doing in the South Bronx. And so the second year, I spent almost all my time in the South Bronx and I spent it in the emergency department because that's where the action was. And I learned an immense amount. And it was a, uh, there were a good group of people developing uh, a level of care that, uh, where you could feel you were very committed to the community, working and understanding community. It was a lot like what I felt in Brussels. So I stayed and I stayed there for nine years before I went to Belgium. And so it, to me, it seemed that science and big issues were what I was interested in. And toxicology was on the way to that. I think that by the time, I don't think I knew I was going to do tox. I did a lot of chemistry. I liked chemistry a great deal in uh, medical school. But by the uh, time I got to my uh, first years in the South Bronx as a resident, uh, everybody was coming in with heroin overdoses. Uh, I admitted some child to the intensive care unit with lead encephalopathy every year. Uh, a week. It was an amazing issue. People, I saw ethylene glycol poisonings. I saw just everything in a matter of days or weeks uh, and working in the South Bronx in the emergency room. So it became obvious. And I um, ultimately uh, stayed there as a faculty member to work in the South Bronx at a public hospital, 168th Street and Jerome Avenue, a really tough part of the South Bronx during the 70s. And there was an immense amount of violence and the deal I had with the medical school, uh, Einstein and Montefiore Hospital, wanted me to have some organized teaching every month for all the people in, in the hospital. I was part of the Department of Medicine, but my job was to be the full-time leader of the emergency department. So I said, give me a month and I'll decide what I want to do. And so what I did was I said, what are we going to do with all these overdoses? How do you handle mixed overdoses of everything under the sun? That probably became my first topic. And I used a lot of volunteers who I said I would teach. They would help me in the emergency department. I'd teach them. I said, I need these articles. See if they can go to the library and get me these papers. And then the next month I said I had to do heroin. There was so much heroin. We just had the you first- You talked about heroin, you mean? You uh, didn't do heroin. That's right. Maybe, I don't know. I don't yes, know. <laughs> we'll do heroin for my next topic. <laughs> my next topic. And so I said, uh, we don't know much about heroin. No one's written much about heroin. Uh, everybody, all, you see all these people who we called- uh, um, acute lung injury or non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. And we just had received uh, naloxone really from the laboratories. The guys were studying it at uh, Einstein and Montefiore. And so we brought it to the emergency department. Because before this, you would just, I mean, you just intubate people or? Well, remember that I was just starting. I had done a, a residency in internal medicine. There were no emergency medicine residencies then. And there weren't even adequate equipment to do what needed to be done. We had some, but there wasn't an anesthesiologist in the hospital. So we did those things and we learned how to do it. But, you know, there wasn't someone to help with trauma initially. These are all things that the interns and residents who were there. So the, um, the, there wasn't an ambulance system at that point. There was hearses that would pick people yeah, up yeah. and drop them off. They didn't, they didn't want to uh, come in. Uh, the people who had a friend who was an overdose because the laws in New York at that point insisted that people be brought, call the police if you had someone who had a heroin overdose. So we began to think about all of these things and I decided I've got to find out what we do. 
and begin to think about a more rational process. And did what? What? How much naloxone did you give? We were replacing nalorphine and levolorphan, which were both mixed agonists antagonists. And so, if you had someone who was comatose with ethanol or a barbiturate, you gave them levolorphan, they get deeper. It'd make things worse. Yeah. Yes. So. No one had really written about these clinical problems. There were forensic books in toxicology, but there were really no clinical texts at this point. Okay. And so you were saying that you um, essentially, uh, they said you have to do some teaching. So, yeah. And then you developed a kind of an interest in, in overdose. So I saw those poisonings and overdoses. So I said, well, I'll do one poisoning uh, a month. And I'll do whatever's coming up and what's important. And since there are no books to look these, uh, these things up in, there was obviously wasn't uh, either the Encyclopedia Britannica or Wikipedia that was going to help me or the Google wasn't around to help. So I had to do it on my own. So I got these volunteers who were very helpful in the, in the emergency department. And what they did is they – I said, I need everything written about heroin. I need everything written about ethylene glycol. Get me all the things you can find. And so they'd go to Index Medicus and find them and copy them for them. And I would take them home at night and work on them to figure out what I was going to do. But I was a clinician in the emergency department full time every single day. So, uh, And then I gave those talks periodically. And there was a house staff strike one year when a, a guy from who was the editor of Hospital Physician mm-hmm. came by. Which was I don't know if it's still published any longer, but it was it was something that published through my era. For ten years, I wrote a column for hospital physician every once a month, submitted. And those the first editions of our textbook had those chapters take to, taken directly from there. They were revised and making it into a book format. Uh, for there were I think there twenty chapters in the first book, and then maybe forty in the second, and then they changed. We got. Much more. So a long Much history of uh, clinician educator. Yes, something like that. Yeah, and I guess when you gave your first talk, you probably didn't imagine that it would be the beginning of a of uh, many many more talks and no. uh, writings and textbook. Yeah, I didn't even. I mean, I thought that the uh, writings were interesting because it really forced me to those. In those days, you had, it was a short piece. I don't know, four to six pages. There was a journal of the New York State Medical Society, something like that. They offered that I could publish them with them. I decided that I really was interested in these articles. I think we had something called they, – they put some decent graphics in. I could put in uh, an, a radiograph of someone with uh, acute lung injury or I could put in someone with a caustic burn. They'd have put pictures in. Uh, they also wanted to do things that were in vogue in those days, something called clip and carry was a uh, – you made it, made tables and they collected those tables and they were offering them to students or residents. So what, what were the critical points such as you had to talk? You know, what are, what, are the tab- what are the tables you'd use? What's the differential diagnosis? What's the treatment? And so I was building a number of things along those lines. So the, it was a good editor. It was really very helpful to me uh, in, in producing something that was graphically reasonable and this journal was able to invest the energy and money, I guess. And so how did you end up working with the Poison Center? In uh, 19, uh, I mentioned this morning, those 1203 grants from the Nixon administration were really based upon the fact that uh, the National Academy of Sciences had a crazy president that we couldn't trust. Sorry. That's right. So he he, he probably in um, all of them seem they're really bad. We've had some bad presidents, but they, all of them are dwarfed by the Trump's performance. And, but so this uh, in the 60s, there was a recognition uh, that injury, accidents, so to speak, were uh, the major cause of disability in America. 
And that led to the development of the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, which led to Bill Hatton's work to create this three-by-three table model of a, the agent, the host, and the environment, the pre-event, the event, and the post-event. And that led to building EMS systems. And then when you looked at EMS systems, you said, well, I got to care for neonates. I got to care for trauma patients. I got to care for poisoning. So I was involved in many of those. That's what everybody of the few of us in New York City who were working on EMS would be working on. And what led to uh, the, the process of poisoning was that there was no one running the New York City Poison Center at that time. What it was is they were, they were sanitarians. Uh, they, they were interested in the hygiene of water, mm-hmm. the quality of water, the quality of food, things of that nature. And so no one was there. The calls came in, uh, but there was never a doctor or a doctor-like person, a nurse or a pharmacist. So it was really for the, the well-being of the nutrition supply and water supply of the city. So ultimately, uh, what poisons we, something I spoke about, uh, worked with Barry Rumack, Fred Lovejoy from Boston. We were writing protocols for what a poison center should be. Mm-hmm. Once again, having to really uh, put, I mean, put your your mind and your pen, uh, uh, make make committed answers. I find that, um, I mean, at any conference, we can talk around things a lot, but when you're actually having to write down clear guidelines for someone, uh, you can't sit on the fence. So we wrote protocols and we to, and we decided what we were going to need nurses and need, need physicians. And so uh, when I went first went to, that was, started that in 75, we started to have this meeting that we got a team of people across the city of New York, someone at every hospital, and who was doing an emergency medicine effort. We said, you're going to be our uh, uh, representative, a consultant, so to speak, representing your hospital in, for the New York City Point Center. Mm-hmm. And we worked, and I reached an agreement with the guy who was the uh, head of the uh, laboratories that I would be an unpaid worker for the Poison Center in the health department in something like 1976. And then uh, I, we then had a meeting that we'd have once a month to go over cases. We got people together. We strategized. We presented what we we're going to build out of this Boyden Center, talked to the commissioner of health. We said we need to make a transition from sanitarians to nurses and pharmacists. We began to they, – they had – there was no computerized index. There was no micromedics yet. There was simply the card files. Mm-hmm. And those card files are what they had. We had to use them to get the the work going. And we would spend a lot of time teaching them. And I got staff to participate with the people who worked there and then made the transition to pharmacists and nurses as time went on. And so that was one of the drawing forces for me to leave the South Bronx and go to work at Bellevue because the Boyden Center is right across from Bellevue. Yeah, right there. Yeah, still. Still, Yes. Well, I hope you enjoyed that really small snippet of one man's long journey and life. In ending, I asked Dr. Goldfrank if he had any advice for young toxicologists, and so that's what I'd like to close with today. I want to thank you for listening to me. I'm Matt Zuckerman with ToxNow. You can check out more at ToxNow.org or tweet at us or about us at ToxNow. Also, feel free to comment or rate us in the iTunes store. That's how a lot of people find out about us. Thanks. Well, I think same thing I usually say is it's an amazing opportunity. Um, you see things every day that are um, inexplicable, and the job is to think about them and work on solving them. And then the uh, 
many things that you don't recognize as consequential become very consequential. You shouldn't be satisfied with saying, I don't understand. Uh, you have to work through the process. Uh, but, you know, to never get discouraged when you try to solve a problem, you're, you inevitably, you will fail many times before you succeed. And success for us in emergency medicine probably is tricky in medical toxicology because um, the more we study, the more we know, the more uncertain we become, but the safer we become at doing our job and we're better prepared for doing it. This podcast is recorded in the studios of the Digital Scholarship Accelerator at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. Talks Now is produced with support from the American Academy of Clinical Toxicology. 